All right. Once again, thank you all for joining us today. My name is Lionel Foster. I am Senior Communications Manager for the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center. With me are Veronica Guy-Khan, editor of the Urban Institute's blog, Urban Wire, and Bridget Lowell, Urban's Chief Communications Officer. So uh, we are here to tell and share some truths today. So I hope you're ready. I am bracing myself. It is um, just really wonderful, but also humbling to take you behind the scenes um, to some of the conversations we've been having and things we've been learning together at the Urban Institute. So the Urban Institute is a nonprofit research organization. We marshal facts to support better public policy and improve people's lives. For example, I work in our tax policy center, which people count on during election seasons like this one to calculate the impact of presidential candidates' tax policy proposals on individuals at every income level. So people look to us to be even-handed, fair, objective, and, and nonpartisan. So it's a lot to live up to, and we, we take it very seriously. Um, so today, you know, we're in the process of grappling with facts that are forcing us to discuss and answer questions about who we are. So um, we'll talk to you a bit about that and, and hopefully hear a lot from you. We're especially interested in the Q&A. Um, you know, talking about who we are and what we want to be, I know that, uh, like me, a lot of you are thinking about Breonna Taylor and her family and trying to make sense of something that seems senseless. I, I frankly don't know what to say. I know during moments like this, people who work on social justice and, and, and try to make the world fairer, they, they lose a lot of hope on days like this, and I understand it entirely. Um, so if you're feeling like that, that way, I sympathize, but this work is absolutely necessary. Uh, it can change minds, and to the extent that it can change minds, it can change lives. So today, as hard as it is um, and as ridiculous as it might seem, I, I choose to have hope. And the fact that you all are here, I think, for me, justifies that hope. Uh, so that's part of how I'm framing uh, Brianna Taylor's death and what seems like a lack of accountability around it. Um, so you all give me hope. So thank you once again. So today we will talk about Urban's journey, uh, not just talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, but really trying to act on it, changing how we conduct and communicate research, some key takeaways, and as I mentioned before, leaving lots of time for the Q&A. Uh, we want to ask that if you uh, so we're trying to make the most of the technology. We're a little limited. I, we all really, really wanted to hear your beautiful voices. We wanted that, uh, but that's going to be a little difficult. So we'll make the most of the chat function. So what we ask is that if you have questions as we uh, present, and we're going to try to keep the presentation to within <clears throat> about 25 minutes, go ahead and put those questions in the chat. And then at the end, we'll start going through those chat questions and you can add even more as we go on. But just know that we'll be utilizing the chat feature and we're, we're very limited in what, in what we can do in terms of actually uh, hearing from people orally. Uh, and with that, I believe I will hand it over to Bridget. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of build on Lionel's remarks and say um, that we approach this conversation um, with you all today with uh, no small amount of humility. 
Uh, the Urban Institute is primarily a white-led organization on a DEI journey. And I am keenly aware that there are many social justice warriors at this conference and in this conversation, most likely, who have been at this work um, with credibility, with deep experience. And it is not our intention to get out in front of other voices, particularly Black voices, who have been at this for a long time. So I actually reached out to um, Sean and Carrie and others and questioned whether we should lead this conversation. And um, you know, they were really supportive and, and felt that there is a place for an institution like ours to talk about this journey um, because we are not the only ones um, for whom it has taken too long to do the really deep hard work you know, reckoning with racism, you know, in our society and inside our own workplace. So it is with no small amount of humility that we approach this conversation. And um, we know that we've had a lot to say about disparities and not enough about the racist systems and societies that perpetuate those disparities. So uh, we expect to learn um, more than we share. Yep. So as Bridget said, we're approaching this conversation with self-awareness and openness. Um, and as part of our journey, we've committed to learning, um, to reevaluating who at Urban holds the power and how that plays out. Um, and so we welcome you to hold us accountable today. Lionel, I'm not hearing you. I don't know about anybody else. Is it just me? Veronica, are you hearing Lionel? Thank you, no. Okay. Um, all right, technology. So Urban was founded in 1968 by President Lyndon Johnson. Uh, here's what Johnson said about Urban. During a period that saw unrest and racialized violence around the country, he said we were needed, quote, to help solve the problem that weighs heavily on the hearts and minds of all of us the problem of the American city and its people, end quote. So Johnson's record on civil rights legislation, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 65, Fair Housing Act of 68, Higher Education Act of 65, this may be the most impressive in modern U.S. presidential history. He also berated his staff, black and white, was closely aligned with Southern segregationists during his early years in the Senate, and was quick with racial and a very creative array of other slurs. So um, let me stop there and just ask that we send really, really positive thoughts to Robert Caro, who was finishing the last volume of his multi-volume history on Lyndon Johnson. We need Caro to get through this and finish that book and live a very long and healthy life and go on book tour and educate the whole world. So just please join me and sending out Robert Carroll. Thank you, Mr. Carroll. Um, anyone interested in how Urban has been grappling with this legacy should read uh, Reckoning with Structural Racism and Research, LBJ's Legacy in Urban's Next 50 by Cameron Okeke and Nancy Levine on Urban, the Urban Institute's blog. So for years, we were a largely white and privileged organization researching low-income communities and communities of color speaking to and working at the behest of what were often largely white privileged institutions. So you can see some of the tensions here. Some of that began to change in 2012 when our current president, Sarah Wartell, took office. 
Uh, Sarah was serious about making Urban's expertise relevant to a much broader audience. So eventually some of the, say, 140 page reports we produced were still long, but were supported with blog posts and tweets and data visualizations. And gradually our staff composition, mostly in the junior staff ranks, began to look more like the demographics of the rest of the country. So in 2016, DEI became a formal institutional priority for urban. So that meant that we created a roadmap um, that had a few different domains or categories to help us achieve goals and also to help us measure our progress. Um, so urban identified three domains for that work. The first is workplace culture. So that means that urban's committed to making urban a place where people feel like they can bring them their whole selves to work and where they feel like diversity is respected and that they're accepted. Um, the second is staff composition. So Urban um, is committed to making our um, hiring, recruitment, and retainment policies more inclusive. And the third is research content and communications, which we're focusing on today. Um, so that means that Urban is officially committed to producing respectful research and communications products. Um, and avoiding negative stereotypes um, and making sure that we acknowledge the historical and social context that lead to all the disparities that we talk about. And we hope that by making our products more inclusive that we then attract and retain a more diverse audience. So even though all these categories are separate, we view them as very interrelated and the progress of one affects the progress of the others. Um, so we've developed some goals within each category um, and to measure our to measure our progress. Um, so a few ways that we have gone about trying to achieve these include expanding our um, recruitment and hiring processes, um, staff trainings, internal staff trainings, and providing guidance um, on the language that we use, providing supports for the research process, and more that we'll get into. Yeah, so we want to dig in a little bit more on this piece on research content and communication today. And just to give you a little context of, of the evolution on this, for 40 something years, Urban's tagline was research of record. So not exactly like warm and fuzzy and compelling. And even as we rebranded about seven years ago, we talked about how much to embrace the values that, that bring a lot of people to this work. But as an organization of scholars and academics, there were still a lot of folks in urban who kind of held those values at a distance a little bit and really saw that their role was to bring evidence to decisions and hopefully improve lives and communities, um, but not necessarily to, to lead with um, issues like structural racism. And as the world has shifted, as you heard Lionel and Veronica both talk about, as our staff has grown, gotten bigger and younger and more diverse, and most importantly, as racism has become so impossible to ignore, um, especially in these really painful last few years, we've seen um, urban scholars really embracing this work in a way that is much more explicit than they did before. So an example of this is that for our 50th anniversary, we asked and answered a series of questions about what would it take to create a more equitable society. And as part of this, we really leaned into these questions around what would it take to end structural racism? And to really, we, to do this, we partnered with scholars and people with very bold, sometimes controversial ideas, um, and really tried to explicitly name things that I think before had been implicit for us, to name the racist systems and um, structures and institutions that perpetuate disparities that we have a lot of experience with and that we've talked so much about for so many years. 
So I think of Urban's diversity, equity, and inclusion work in three phases. It's been an evolution, and it's ongoing. So the first phase revolved around what was called a diversity and inclusion steering committee, or DISC. This was an advisory body headed by a senior researcher of color, which recruited staff to think about policies and practices Urban should consider adopting. Some great things came out of DISC, including a biennial workplace climate survey and a trusted advisor program that allowed staff to have a confidential audience for any work-related concerns they might have. The upside of DISC was its flexibility. If an idea DISC raised had a capable sponsor, it stood a good chance of being implemented. The downside was its slowness and relative lack of structure. Uh, some staff members felt we did more talking than doing. DISC laid the groundwork for a more democratic and comprehensive structure called the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Council. So it's, it's kind of radical. Everyone at Urban can nominate themselves for and vote on the council's six elected members. Those six can opt to serve for one or two years alongside four senior executives who hold permanent seats and two senior vice presidents appointed for a set term by the president. Whereas DISC's work was often ad hoc, the DEI Council, which began operation this past January, is attempting to serve an oversight function, looking at DEI issues across the organization and crafting a roadmap document that governs all of Urban's DEI work uh, Bridget and I both serve on the DEI Council. Uh, what you see here on this screen are visuals from the quarterly town halls the Council holds to hear from and deliver information to our colleagues. So the Council was phase two, and what I would call phase three is the one we're in now, following the murder of George Floyd in May. Um, in an open letter, Urban's African American and Black Affinity Group uh, informed leadership in the entire organization that leadership's response to Floyd's killing was not vocal or robust enough, and that this feeling of not being sufficiently heard or seen was emblematic of what it was like for too many people to work at Urban. They asked if Urban was really about what it claims to be about. And we're trying to show that we are about what we claim to be about all of the communications tools we will mention in the following section were finished or under development before George Floyd's death, but they seem to garner even more interest and attention now, which is completely understandable and welcome. For example, a team at Urban recently completed the Urban Institute Guide for Racial Equity in the Research Process. It poses key questions for staff to consider at every stage of the research process, from formulating the research question to collecting data and promoting the final product. So some of those key questions include, is the problem under consideration worse or exacerbated for people of color? How will voices from the community be incorporated into the research process? How do we acknowledge data constraints? And how do we ensure equity and sensitivity when forming research teams? So another thing we have done to um, to work toward our research and communications goals is creating what we what we call inclusive language toolkits. Um, so the toolkits encourage urban employees to think about the ways that language can either reinforce or counter negative stereotypes. 
Um, they give our staff some backgrounds, tips, um, and examples of how to write about different populations inclusively and respectfully. Um, staff at all levels contributed to the toolkits and often aligned with the affinity group related to the toolkit. So for example, I'm a member of the Latinx affinity group and helped develop the um, Latinx toolkit that you see here. Um, so you can see this is a pretty good example of what the rest of the toolkits look like too. Um, they contain some frequently used terms, some suggested footnote language. Um, for this one, some information about translation and um, explanations about the nuance around language. We encourage staff to consult the toolkits from before they even begin the research process, um, throughout their research, and then um, uh, through the product that they're creating, because we don't want language or inclusion to be an afterthought. Um, so one important point about these is that they're iterative. So um, we developed them a while ago, but we recognize that both language and social context are constantly evolving. Um, and so we've committed to updating them periodically. So, so far we've completed the racial equity in the research process toolkit that Lionel just shared. Um, this one on Hispanic and Latino or Latinx people, one on people of African descent, one on people experiencing poverty, one on people involved in the criminal justice system, one on sexual and gender diversity, and one on US immigrants. And we are constantly adding to the list of to-do um, toolkits, so we're working on some and we have ideas for others. Um, also for about the past four years, um, the blog team has been thinking about the ways that we um, address the way that we write about people on the blog. Um, and we have really encouraged authors to use what we call people-first language. Um, so our goal is that all blog posts, all content across urban, but especially blog posts, um, respect the dignity of all people. And the toolkits have been a really good tool to help us accomplish that goal. Um, so then this summer, I um, joined the blog team in June and um, kind of in response to George Floyd's killing, the protests, lots of internal conversations that um, Lionel mentioned we were having, um, our blog team started thinking about ways that we could better equip our authors to um, write about structural racism. We had heard so many authors come to us and say we want to tackle this issue, but we just don't know where to start. Um, so we created racial equity guidelines um, that encourage authors to apply a racial equity lens when they're writing posts. At a minimum, we ask that authors name the racist practices and policies that contribute to the racial and ethnic inequities about in the topics that they're writing about. But we also encourage authors to take this analysis a step further. Um, and so we offer questions and considerations um, and examples for authors to consult as they write. So a key component of this new process has been our partnership with the Structural Racism Project. Um, so the Structural Racism Project is a group that's been around at Urban for longer than I've been at Urban. Um, but among other things, they have helped Urban develop its Structural Racism research agenda. Um, but for our process, the blog team pairs a member of the Structural Racism Project with the blog author, um, depending on subject matter expertise. So for example, if a blog post is talking about housing discrimination or segregation, we'll pair um, the author with a member of the Structural Racism Project who is in our Metropolitan Housing Center. Um, and they'll provide advice and feedback on how to strengthen that racial equity frame for the blog. Um, the process is entirely opt-in, and so far lots of folks have opted in, which has been great, and I think we have seen, already seen some added value to our blog posts. 
And we've also found that um, releasing these around the same time as the toolkit that, that Lionel shared um, about race, racial equity in the research process has been like a really nice pairing. Um, so one thing that I want to um, mention, because I know we're getting a lot of questions about sharing guides, is the products took a lot of time to, to create and were so iterative. And um, we like got reviewed, we, they were reviewed, we incorporated feedback, and they're never going to be a final, I don't think. Um, we are going to regularly update them um, as the world changes. <laughs> Yeah, I want to jump in on this point too because I see all the comments flooding the chat and we've actually talked a lot about internally about whether and how to share these toolkits and have kind of struggled with it for the reasons I stated in the beginning, right? Like we are in this mode of humility and we know that we still have so much to learn that we didn't want to um, present ourselves as coming out here with all the answers. At the same time though, there is this growing recognition that we want to be part of the dialogue. We want to be part of the community of people who are striving to do this better and if we can put something out there get feedback on it and hold ourselves accountable, um, you know, that's all to the good. So um, we actually are, we're very cautious about sharing. And, and before we share anything, we actually go through the different affinity groups and our DEI council and ask if people are comfortable with it. So just before the session today, I've actually been in touch with other members of the RDEI council and the folks who wrote, for example, the racial equity toolkit for research design and said, what do you think? And we had this robust email conversation about whether to share it. And finally came down on the, on the side of, we are ready to put this on urban.org as a standard publication, but we actually wanna add to it um, all the resources that went into it because we wanna make sure that we're not co-opting the good work um, that actually contributed to our document, to our synthesis of this. So, um, so we are gonna be publishing for starters, the racial equity toolkit on urban.org as long as we um, first include all of those resources because we think that's so important. So that will happen soon. And I'm really glad to email that to folks to get a list of everybody who's on here and send it to the ComNet folks so they can distribute it um, within our community. Um, as you know, Veronica said about all the other toolkits, they are these living, breathing documents. And, and that brings me to kind of a big point that I wanted to make here, which is our message is that you have to do the work. And by you, I mean you, the researcher, you, the institution, there's no one toolkit that can ever provide the answers. I mean, in these toolkits, for example, we don't say, no, it's not Latinx, it's Hispanic, or no, it's not African-American, it's Black, because there's never any one answer. What the toolkits are designed to do is walk people through the process, give them the full nuance and perspective on terms and their history and their context and um, what they've meant over time, and then prompt the researcher to make a decision about the language they're going to use and explain that decision in their publication. Um, and that thoughtfulness and intentionality is really like at the root of all of this work. It's not giving people an answer. It's not saying, here's your boilerplate language. It's saying, here's your process. Here's a guide to take you through that process. Now go be transparent and explain your process to the user. And that is a lot of work. Um, but we think that's the only way to do this with integrity um, without it just being a throwaway line that you include in a blog post saying, of course, structural racism has contributed to these disparities for decades. Like that's not actually adding to the dialogue. And the same, I would say, is just true when we talk about sharing these toolkits to other institutions. Um, I think the message here is that each institution has to go on their own journey and each organization has to consider what does applying a racial equity lens look like on our products, you know, on our work, and how do we change what we do in a pretty deep way in order to bring that lens responsibly to the work. 
And, um, and I do think it will probably look very different from one place to the next. I mean, we're sharing this journey so that it can help you figure out where to go, but I by no means think that this journey would be everybody's journey. So as we think about what change looks like to kind of like bring it home, I would just say that my takeaway over these last few years is how important it is that change comes from both the top of the organization and within. And that means that you need your leadership to be engaged, to clear the resources, to make this a priority, um, to really support this work. And also, as I think Veronica said in the beginning, to rethink power in the organization and to make sure that people throughout the ranks have the power to drive change. Because really some of the most important um, conversations that we've had have really come from people who in some cases have only been at Urban a very short time and are early in their career, but they've got bold, sharp thinking and a strong perspective and point of view that is driving positive change in a way that you're not gonna necessarily get from somebody who's been in an organization for decades and isn't seeing things in the same way. So I think it really is important that um, you reevaluate power structures and see to it that staff at all levels have a chance to do this like, in a meaningful way, um, in a way that actually will drive results. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that they're invited into the conversation and given opportunities to participate within that. Um, we also feel really strongly that um, that DEI should address both the products that we produce and the staff culture and that like these are equally important and the progress of one affects the progress of the other. Yeah, and we have here find best practices. So I was fortunate enough, there was a period of about three months where I'd finished one assignment and all nearly all of my job at Urban was to be an editor and cat wrangler as we developed more of the language toolkits that Veronica mentioned. Um, and I started with a literature review, the kind of thing I learned to do in graduate school, reading, uh, you know, the smart things that journalists were writing. Big shout out to the DC Fiscal Policy Institute that had and, and has an incredible guide on uh, the language considerations around the work that they use. For example, when I was with the U.S. Partnership on Mobility from Poverty, we had a convention where we, we stopped writing the phrase like poor people, and instead it was people in poverty, uh, people experiencing poverty more often, um, to, to highlight the fact that poverty, especially in America, is not a static condition. There's something like 60% of the U.S. population that will experience at least one year um, kind of painfully close to the federal poverty line, if not below it, then just barely above it within their lifetime, 60%. So, you know, we're looking out at, at best practices, but then this fourth point, you have to make them your own. It's so often, if you're not careful, what will happen is you'll get something that someone else labels a best practice, but it's divorced from the particular context of your organization. So take the best of what you can find, bring it, you know, into your organization and talk about it and vet it and kick the tires on it and debate whether um, it, it really would be a best practice for you or if some variation on that might fit better to your, your mission and your culture. So, so those are some of our big takeaways. Um, and now we're actually at the point I've, I've been really itch to get to for a while now. So thank you all so much. You, um, we have a lot, I'll start with the chat. So I will back up and toss out questions.
for Bridget and Veronica and maybe me to weigh in on. I might combine a few of these and uh, let's see, let me see. Thank you for opening. Uh, okay. Got a few thank yous, which we appreciate. Um, I see a question here. Will you be able to share info on your workplace culture, staff composition as well? Bridget might have some of these uh, numbers in her head a little more solid than I do, but um, I, I know broadly speaking, so that, that workplace uh, climate survey was just tremendous. So it comes out every other year and it asks uh, questions like about general satisfaction at Urban, uh, do people feel they're able to advance? And I, I think this would have been one or two surveys ago, we saw, um, and so first Urban is about 550 people and we have researchers at various levels and lots of staff and others supporting in important capacities. And in the climate survey from a few years ago, you saw in terms of kind of satisfaction uh, with the workplace and the prospects for advancement, you saw a real split between junior staff who tend to be like quite diverse. Much of the racial, certainly diversity we have in the organization comes from junior research staff. You saw a split between their sentiments and those of uh, senior researchers. And Bridget, do, do you want to say any more about that? Uh, I was just going to mention that we actually publish on urban.org under the diversity and inclusion section, um, our breakdown by race. And we don't do that because we're really diverse and proud of that. Like we do that to hold ourselves accountable. And if you'll look, you'll be like, wow, you guys have a way to go. And we do. Um, and we um, are just committed to being very transparent about this journey. Um, so you can see that we are primarily white led and you can actually see the breakdown um, if you're interested, if you go to uh, the diversity and inclusion section of our website. Thank you. And we've had a number of comments asking if we can share some of the documents we mentioned. So I'm going to say something and then Bridget can save me if I, if I, I don't think I'm promising too much, but what we discussed in advance was the, um, the document about incorporating uh, racial equity lens in the research process. So yes to that. And there's the, that tremendous blog post by Cameron Okeke and Nancy Lavigne looking back on 50 years and Urban's grappling with structural racism. I know amongst ourselves, we also talked about at minimum a, the template for how we approach the language toolkits. And did I, did I hit everything, Bridget and Veronica? We can also share the, the racial equity blog guidelines. Blog guidelines, yeah. For the low, low price of free. So I feel like, like I set you up and I thought, oh, you're only gonna get three things and then Veronica gave you one more because she's good like that. Uh, let me see. So that's about sharing the document. I see there's a question I mean, about accessibility too. We're actually having these conversations right now and um, we are developing an accessibility um, toolkit um, specifically uh, to talk about people who are exper experiencing disabilities. Um, and um, we've talked about how to um, capture disability too as we're reporting out on this data. So I think that's an excellent question that's very much on the radar and something I think we'll be acting on soon. So just wanted to um, address that one. Yeah, there's a question. Are you thinking about how you talk about youth who have been, been who have been affected by the criminal justice system and our foster youth? I, I know certainly um, language considerations, how our use of language shapes the way we think about certain populations 
we give a great deal of thought to that. And it was actually our Justice Policy, Justice Policy Center for whom this particular issue would be immediately relevant. They wrote the, the very first language toolkit that became the model for all the others. So uh, our Justice Policy Center has been especially good in, in teaching Urban how to think about these issues. Are these, um, there's a question that the types of documents we mentioned, are these appendices to our organization's style guide? So, and Bridget can help me here too. So um, my understanding is that we, we have a style guide where these are, uh, there's some grammatical and stylistic rules that are just set in stone. Anything that comes through copy editing, um, the copy editor just has more or less the, the final say on, you know, this is what urban style is. Now, with respect to the types of tool, language toolkits we mentioned, as, as Bridget said, what we want to do is, in the toolkit, give the researcher and the research team enough information to make fully informed choices about what their language choices are, how those language choices might influence the way people read their work, uh, which communities might feel um, kind of left out of the process if they use certain terms, and then very importantly, to justify, to be explicit about and explain the language choices they made. So my understanding is that our, our copy editors um, know these documents quite well and study them, and they're, you know, yet another um, constituent that when they, when they see you know, a relevant passage or a line or a section of a, a research product will, you know, send the researcher to, to the toolkit and ask that they be explicit about uh, the decisions they're making. Yeah, Do you want to add anything, Bridget? No, uh, just that, um, you know, we're really trying to get researchers to think about these toolkits more frequently than just at the end when they are finishing up a report. And I think that's the shift that we're really in the middle of now. We've gone to this work of developing these toolkits um, in response to one of the questions here. We actually do a brown bag session every time one of them is done. We've done multiple brown bag sessions on a couple where we actually go through the toolkit. We explain why we did it. We give the kind of highlights of um, the findings and the recommendations that are in there. But it's, it's internalizing those toolkits so that people um, are using them regularly in their work is something I think we're not quite there yet. Some people are, but many people aren't. And many people are only thinking of language at the end. And we want them to think of language at the very beginning. In fact, we want them to have conversations in some cases with communities to make sure that they're using language intentionally, that their communities that they're studying or writing about would actually support. So that's very much a work in progress for us. Yeah, I helped develop uh, something like three or four of the toolkits and we did a host of the brown bag, as Bridget mentioned, when we released each of them. And it wasn't until I got to my third brown bag. I mean, I had put in dozens of hours on helping bring these things to fruition. And someone asked a question and, and then I, I said out loud, like the moment I, I said, you know what, we've been working backwards. So we started off with, you know, because, you know, Bridget, all the three, the three of your presenters here, we work in communications. Well, by the time you're ready to communicate something, you've already made a lot of decisions about, you know, what the heck you're doing, what you're looking at, whom you're considering, whom you're not. And I said, that's funny. We're, we started with language when you really need to start 
you know, before the research process gets going in earnest. So which was why we're so happy to have this, um, you know, guide to considering racial equity in the, the research process. But, you know, I just want to flag a really important turning point, certainly for me and maybe for others in urban where we go, you know what? Okay, it's great that we, we've put all this thought into the language we should use. Let's, you know, propagate backwards upstream in the in this system um, to get at some of this earlier. All right, let me see. Get at some of the People are talking questions. about usability. I think I addressed some of that when I talked about kind of our struggle in deciding what to share and what not to share and the spirit with which to share it. One of the um, kind of compromise solutions that we've derived at is um, sometimes a toolkit author will blog about the toolkit and just sort of, we have a couple of blog posts that we actually included on the breakout page, I think, um, about our journey on language and what that looks like. I know that, again, the Justice Policy Center did that, and I think one or two others, that the Partnership on Mobility from Poverty, as Lionel talked about, had a whole line of content that was just around language and writing and um, stereotyping and othering and really kind of addressing this issue in a very substantive way. Um, so, you know, where we feel like it has connected to the research and where we feel like we have something to add to the field of social science, then we are trying to take that opportunity to explain the process. I see a question here from uh, Sarah Jimenez. How did you balance time producing public reports and toolkits? So these are like internal versus uh, external facing products to taking time to do the toolkits, slow down in good or other ways, the public reports, blogs, et cetera. Um, so I'll, I'll start and then Veronica and Bridget can jump in. I, I don't think it slowed down much. Um, while all of the toolkits, each of the toolkits was under development, you know, I, I think everything else was moving the pace. Honestly, the, the bigger issue was in developing the toolkits and, and getting them done is that like at Urban, if, if you don't have one, a specific budget code to charge to, we charge our time to projects um, a lot like lawyers do. If you don't have a budget code and then clearly identify staff to execute by a specific deadline, then things may eventually get done, but maybe on a, a longer timeline. So it was it was fantastic that we we had the funding to do this internally and the staff. So but to answer your question, the some of the external facing products that say were coming out around the same time the toolkits were being developed. I think these were on two different streams. And then once the toolkits were done, I don't think it's been too hard to wrap in, hey, consulting with the toolkits as part of the, the writing and research process. Yeah, I agree. Um, each of the toolkits has a list of folks within urban who can be on deck to answer questions. And I am one for the Latinx toolkit and I get an email with a question maybe every couple months. Um, so even the commitment after creating the toolkits is not huge. I am just reading through uh, Veronica and Bridget if you see other questions that jump out. Please do. I'm just trying yeah, to Yeah, I, I saw in. one on junior staff. I can jump in and, and try to speak to that. Um, people asking how to, how to ensure that junior staff have a role in this process or how to have a conversation about power. I mean, I feel like on the, on the one hand, Lionel and Veronica and I are really lucky that um, we work for somebody in Sarah Wartell who um, was really focused on DEI from the moment she arrived in 2012. And it took a while to develop the structures that eventually evolved into the, the DEI council and the various affinity groups we have today. I mean, it's, it's taken eight years. 
but she was, um, no one ever had to convince her that this was a priority. She came in and was like, wow, we have work to do, you know, <laughs> look at this workforce, like, you know, what is happening, you know, so, so immediately it was a priority and she started those conversations. And you can't also, um, I can't emphasize enough the power of a workplace culture survey where you're giving people the opportunity to say in their own words what their experience is. Because sometimes you need to just create an environment where you can surface, especially junior staff who maybe don't feel like they can express what's going on. You've got to give them that safe space um, to articulate that and, you know, to create that aha moment for older staff who are complacent or privileged and white and just don't understand, you know, microaggressions and, and implicit bias and, and everything that somebody else might be experiencing. And I think we did see that early on. And, um, and Urban is in a very different place now of having very raw and honest conversations. And I think trying to make a very genuine effort to look within and ask even harder questions of ourselves and make change. But it is a journey and it takes time. And I think you have to create spaces over and over and over again where junior staff can come together, where they can um, have these conversations amongst each other, have a vehicle for sharing that to senior leadership. Um, it's one of those things that it's, like I said in the beginning, it's a journey. And I think um, we have to just keep empowering people to stay at it. Yeah, I, I can't overemphasize how messy and sometimes difficult these processes can be. And one way, so I mentioned Bridget and I are on Urban's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Council. So yeah, but I mean, a, a democratic body, you know, within a larger organization. So democracy, how about that? Um, and one of the ways I, I talk about how, how do we gauge uh, progress is that I would say up until about a year and a half, two years ago, as a, as a, a person of color, within urban, that is, as we've mentioned, majority white, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very outspoken, as you can probably tell, for, like part of the reason Bridget asked me to be part of this presentation is because I'm not shy. I will speak up. I will say the difficult things. I will say the difficult thing to my boss and my boss's boss and that person's boss. Um, but mind you, sometimes I, I do, even I have to pick my spots. And, you know, there have been lots of situations where um, when you don't belong to the dominant group. Maybe there are things that you would say behind closed doors or after hours to someone who looks like you or someone you think gets it. And part of the way I gauge progress is the types of conversations that were previously held behind closed doors. Are we more often able to say it out loud in public in one of the quarterly town halls that the diversity equity and inclusion council holds or in a meeting between when an affinity group comes to the elected members of the council and says, hey, can we have a meeting? This is a concern of ours. Or in an open letter to leadership and the rest of urban from one of our affinity groups. So it's, it's hard. And sometimes, let me be clear, we get it wrong. But one area where I'm incredibly hopeful is that more often people can say the darn thing out loud. And I, I really like that. Um, let me get to another question here. A question from Karen. How do you balance inclusive language when the community you're speaking about doesn't align with necessarily align with the language you're using, such as using Latinx when the community sees themselves as Latinos? I'll, 
I'll just say a word and then hand that over to Veronica because she was directly involved with um, that particular language guide. Um, we, so one, one of our principles is that we, we advise researchers, you should be the community you're researching, doing research about or, or even with, you should know what, what their preference is. And you know, ultimately the researcher is the author of that report and they have decisions to make and decisions to justify, but you know, how the community, the, the community, specific community that is the subject of the research, it might even have been interviewed, um, you know, their, their preferences do, do matter in that balance. And Veronica, you, you wanna add on to that? Yeah, I would just say also to be as specific as possible. So for example, if you're researching a Puerto Rican community, say Puerto Rican and don't say Hispanic or Latino or Latinx. Um, and then also we just encourage folks to explain the terms they're using no matter what. So lots of people at Urban especially um, say that they wanna use the same terminology as the data set. So we say, okay, if you're going to do that, can you at least you know, either add a footnote in your research product or in the blog, can you add a parentheses or say in the body of the text why you chose that term? Um, I think you mentioned the term Latinx and how um, members of that community might not identify that way. So for a lot of blog posts, we'll say in the text, because we don't want it to be an afterthought and we don't want people to have to scroll down to a footnote. So we'll say in the body of the text, we're choosing to use the term Latinx because it might be more inclusive um, based on gender identity, but we understand that not everybody in this group identifies with this term. Um, we have a Latinx um, research landing page with that, um, with that explanation and also a commitment to keep learning, keep updating, um, as we go. Um, but yeah, I think, I think Bridget also mentioned this at the beginning, but just engaging with the communities and asking them their preferred terms is so important. Yeah, I'm seeing a number of questions about the, the workplace climate survey. Um, how often do you uh, roll out the survey? It's generally been uh, every two years. How do you recommend doing a workplace culture survey with the staff of less than 10 people. So mm -hmm. I do think it's possible, but we have, um, I think in every instance up to now, we've worked with an outside firm. So in terms of the precision of some of the questions and the methodology, we've had some outside help with, with that. So I, I think if, if you can afford it or, or get tips from a, another organization at, at your scale, that would be super helpful. I also know that some centers have had um, an external person come in and facilitate discussions, like a person whose sole job it is to work on DEI um, and helping organizations. So that could be a good option for a smaller group. I see a question here uh, from Emily Driscoll. What should communicators keep in mind to ensure that efforts to promote more diversity, equity, and inclusion remain a priority for their organization for the long haul and not approached as merely a one and done box to check? I love that question. We are absolutely grappling with it. So um, bring you into a process we're undergoing right now. Um, there's a diversity, equity, and inclusion council. And our big remit is to update what we call a DEI roadmap that, and at least the, the last iteration of the roadmap had goals and objectives and down from that activities and activities were assigned to particular people in the organization with deadlines. So that's, that's the, the structure of the roadmap. We're in that process of updating that. And um, the, 
the response from some staff after the, the, the murder of George Floyd really prompted us to recommit to, to updating that sooner rather than later. So there's now a draft equity uh, framework that lays out a lot of principles and, and goals. And we're discussing as, a, as an organization that is supposed to then inform the roadmap. And one of the questions I've asked, and I keep, I keep beating this drum, asking other people to ask and answer the question as well is, like, what is the theory of, of change? Like what is, so you can have objectives and you can have activities, but what is the impetus, that force, that, that thing that you can identify that's gonna guarantee or as close as possible, like guarantee that we'll keep moving forward. Um, so that's something I'm, I'm very much thinking about. So Emily, I don't actually have an answer to that question, but I know that just the kind of historic people kind of voting with their bodies and, and hitting the streets and, and having conversations and holding people to account very publicly that work outside of the Institute is a, definitely affecting things within the Institute. And I, and I just see a lot more urgency and commitment to this stuff. Lionel, can I just add one thing to that, which is that in addition to this work happening at the institutional level with the kind of assignment of responsibility and, and deadlines associated with it, each center within urban is also on point to develop their own DEI plan. Um, and then, for example, within COM, I have an overall COM DEI plan, and then every team within COM has their own list of DEI priorities. And we've talked about among all the directors of those teams that those have to go down to the individual. So each person should have some aspects of that DEI roadmap reflected in their work. You know, in Veronica, it's figuring out like what those racial equity blog guidelines look like and implementing them and making refining them and assessing whether or not they're working. Um, each person has a version of that on this team. And I really feel that the key to making this um, meaningful is that it's not over there. It's not, oh, that's the DEI plan. We haven't checked in on that in a while. How are we doing? It said it's got to be baked into every single thing you do. And that's one thing I'm really proud of is that I feel like our team within Calm has finally gotten to that point where it is fully integrated to all of our activities every day. Every photo editor is thinking about the image they select and the story that they're telling with the image and kind of gut checking that and having a conversation with the researcher about the impact that image could have as we think about racial equity. Um, you know, every blog post, every production, everything that comes through the production queue, um, you know, you name it. It's like, it's, it's gotta be front of mind for everybody and kind of worked into their daily work stream um, in order for it to stick and to actually drive something that feels like change. Yeah, and what Bridges said relates to a question uh, Zach Hochstadt wrote, for some DEI is a partisan issue, how does a nonpartisan organization respond to those who might believe that your investments in DEI undermine your impartiality? Great question. So I, I see this in two ways. So the I think the easy, relatively non-controversial piece of this is that urban, just about everything urban does is focused on low-income income communities and, and what type of assistance they might need um, to, you know, a, a achieve their aspirations and the kinds of things that we all want. So, um, so there's a certain amount where Look, if you're talking about low-income communities and to the extent that your work touches on uh, people of color and communities of color, you just, you have to have a clue. You need <laughs> staff who are from these communities. You need 
everyone to be capable, culturally capable in interacting with, hearing from, and serving a range of communities. And, and fortunately, you know, some of our, our funders, these, so these are basic points, and some of our funders are holding us to these very basic points. So to the extent that you claim to research and write about low-income communities and, you know, where relevant in your work, communities of color, you just have to look like you have a clue. So that's one piece. But then there's another piece, um, you know, and, and a lot of that stuff is, is just more objective. But there's another piece, and Bridget touched on this, that's about, like, what are your values as an organization? And we, we believe we have some values that everyone can get on board with, but how far you lean into some things is still an open question for us. And there's still areas where um, we cannot claim to have, look, if we phrase it this way, we know there's 100% buy-in because as, as some of our senior leadership, they're serious about research or autonomy and independence. So some things are just non-negotiable. You just have to, you, you know, you, you need a certain competency there. But there are some things where, as that question's, Zach's question gets to, there, there is a conversation, and a, and a good one, and we're still trying to figure out where the, the common ground is. This is where the evidence base really helps us, too, you know, in that at Urban, researchers are empowered to reach their own conclusions. And they can be conclusions that align, you know, with a particular party's agenda. But it's got to be an evidence-based conclusion. Um, and it's got to be, like, the evidence, if, if you want to achieve X, the evidence says this is how you get there. You know, if you want to close um, the, the home ownership gap between blacks and whites, here are the policy solutions you should consider based on the evidence, based on what we're seeing, you know, based on the data that tells us, you know, XYZ has contributed to these problems over time. Um, so for us, we're very comfortable, um, you know, being provocative as long as it's got that evidence base, uh, you know, and, and that is helpful guidance in these times when things have become so politicized that shouldn't be. Um, we try to worry less about the politics because there's no way to be nonpartisan now <laughs> and more about whether the evidence backs our conclusion. Yeah, I want to, um, Laurie Warren wrote a, a comment, not a question, but I, I find it really helpful. She wrote, actually having folks who are very early in their DEI journey in the organization is a good thing. Otherwise, you are singing to the choir and have nothing to push up against. Um, yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, I, I think having nothing to push up against is not a problem um, <laughs> at the stage <laughs> we're in right now. But I, I, will, I will second that, Lori. I, I can remember a few moments in particular where in a, in a smaller group, um, there was an older member of staff, person happened to be white, said something that uh, younger members of staff, including people of color, they just said, is she, is she, what are, we, you know, we're kind of giving each other, like, she, she, really, she really said that, right? She said that? Like, yeah, yeah, we heard that. And it became an opportunity to, to have the conversation. I think, um, yeah, it's, it's so many of us live in, in a bubble, in a bubble of people with similar opinions and that don't often get, get checked. Um, so I, I liked it. That worked out exactly the way you, I, I think you could imagine it working out, Laurie. It, it led to a, a really fruitful conversation. And um, but on the other side is that, um, you know, I remember one, one line from the letter to leadership from the African-American and Black affinity group. Um, you could just hear the weariness and that they even had to put 
finger to keyboard and work on this. They said, we're tired, but we've been tired. So I think it cuts both ways. You please, please, please look out for your colleagues. Um, I think maybe in the past few months, we have a greater appreciation of the, the burdens that some of our colleagues bear and, and the burdens that maybe our institution or institutions inadvertently um, make even heavier for some colleagues. The stuff is hard, um, but I, I, I see space opening for more compassion and more capability and, and, and sharing that burden. Um, just doing a time check, we have may, may have time for one. Uh, Jennifer Oldham Healing said, we are tired. Yes, amen. Mm -hmm. um, I think we have time for maybe, I'll try to get two more questions. Bridget Veronica, if you see one you want to flag, let me know. Um, that might transition well into the question from Tanya on how do you balance true equity and inclusion with tokenism and representation? Um, not we consulted our person of color on staff and they're good with it, but how to ensure true equitable decisions for your organization slash those you serve. We got the brown person to take out their stamp pad and boom, they gave us the seal of the <laughs> approval uh, to, you know, I, I do not have such a stamp pad. I, I don't do that kind of work. I think for me, um, I, I, I've been trying to get more comfortable talking about power. Who has the power to make decisions, to, to hire, to promote, to advance certain issues. Um, and I, I think to the extent that your organization gets more comfortable naming centers of power, I, I think I think that can go a long way. I think that's one way you avoid tokenism and really, mm -hmm. and, and really get down to brass tacks. I also feel like the more diverse your staff, the less tokenism there is. And I think you have to create a space where um, people can have the hard and awkward conversation. I mean, you have to constantly be creating those openings to say, um, you know, to Lionel's point, like to create the opening for that staff to go to that person and say what you said in that conversation was actually really inappropriate. And it's you, the, I think that the leadership of the organization has to open all those doors to make that possible so that the burden is not just on the junior staff to have to be incredibly uncomfortable in approaching that person, but that you're trying to create an atmosphere. And honestly, it's incumbent upon every manager to constantly say, I'm going to get this wrong and I expect you to come to me. Um, you know, Lionel said something to me years ago in a meeting, like we were at the very beginning of this journey that I've never forgotten, where he pointed out an image that I used in a presentation and said that he didn't think it was the right image. And I've never forgotten that. And it was probably seven years ago now. It was a long time. Um, but like having that, creating that opportunity for people to tell you when you messed up is maybe one of the most important things. And I feel like every single manager, every single person really in, inside an organization can create that opportunity if they try hard enough um, and are genuinely open to it. Yeah, I wanna second that. And I, you know, it's like Bridget read my mind and it's part of why I'm hopeful because it's about like relationships, like what, at whatever scale of the organization you work, you can contribute to creating the kind of environment that cultivates this trust and this work and more equity. So that was seven years ago. That was like, I, I've been promoted maybe two or three times since then. So I was like a peon and Bridget was the boss. And I, I had, I had to go, I said like, do I, 
can I tell this to Bridget? I was like, yeah, I can tell this to Bridget because Bridget's been cool since like our first conversation. So like Bridget created, helped create that kind of environment and certainly made me feel really empowered. And it led, so fast forward several years. And I remember um, as a, in one of the communication staff meetings, I was reporting, I, I'd been in a, heard about another meeting Bridget was in where Bridget was just really blunt with people at her level about how we need to prioritize this work. So I went to the larger meeting and I, I pretended to act out, I pretended to be Bridget. It's like, hey, y'all, Bridget, she was not playing. It's like, look, y'all gotta treat my people better. This is how it's gonna be. And it's like when, when, you know, when you have that trust one-on-one and you end up backing each other up in these bigger, these bigger rooms and you model the kind of behavior that other people, you want other people to demonstrate. And, and so the, the one-on-one interactions really matter. And eventually they do scale up. If you, if you dare to do the right thing, other people will follow you. And, um, and the, you know, both Bridget and Veronica, I've seen situations where they have dared to say and do something that needs to be said. And it, it makes a difference. So I'm, I'm, really, I'm really grateful to work at Urban and I stay at Urban because of people like them. Um, so we are officially over time. Um, this has been fantastic. I, I love you all. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something crazy. And, uh, here's, that's my email address. So go ahead. Um, if if you want to, uh, you're, I, I know Bridget's, um, because I use it so much. That's Bridget's email address. So you have our contact information and um, yeah, we wanna work with the ComNet organizers to send you the materials we, we mentioned and we're, we're so happy that there's, there seems to be some real demand for it. Um, so thank you, please keep doing what you're doing. Be brave, connect with other people. Everything you do is worth it. And we really appreciate your listening today. Take care. Thank you. Thanks thank everyone. You.